Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. William Dudley, of course, went on to Goldman Sachs and then on to his public service at the New York Fed. And we're thrilled that Dr. Dudley could join us this morning. Uh, We've got a lot of questions, Bill, off your important essay. I'll let John and Lisa get to that. Define the difference between Volcker and Brainerd inflation. What's different with this 7-8% versus a 7-8% when you were certified at Berkeley? I think the difference is that the inflation that Volcker had to fight uh, built up over a long period of time. And so inflation expectations started to rise pretty significantly. So it was much harder to get rid of the inflation than the inflation we have now. The good news is that the inflation expectations are still relatively well anchored. So that would imply that the Federal Reserve isn't going to have to do quite as much uh, to push inflation back down. Your line in your piece this morning in the lead paragraph, Bill, I think has got everyone's attention. So I'll repeat it for everybody who hasn't heard it so far. To be effective, it'll have to inflict more losses, inflict more losses on stock and bond investors than it has so far. Bill, run us through financial conditions and how you gauge financial conditions and why you might believe that stocks are a big part of that. Well, financial conditions are important in the United States, and Chair Powell has emphasized this in his uh, prepared remarks uh, because that's how monetary policy works. Uh, the U.S. economy doesn't run, really run on short-term interest rates. It really runs on long-term interest rates. And the stock market is also important because a lot of people have exposure to the stock market and the level of the stock market affects their wealth. So the Fed has said pretty clearly, uh, we, we need to tighten financial conditions to slow the economy down to keep inflation in check. And so far, financial conditions really haven't tightened very much. Uh, the stock market is only 4% or so off its high. It's still up very sharply from where it was a couple of years ago. And bond yields, you know, 2.5, 2.6% are still really low, especially when you adjust for inflation. So in my mind, the Fed hasn't really accomplished much yet. And if financial conditions don't cooperate with the Fed, the Fed's going to have to do more until financial markets do cooperate. Bill, talk a little bit about the consequences of this. If stocks are a reflection of sentiment, if they affect the way that people are willing to go out and make purchases based on their household wealth, what does that do to the economy? Are you basically saying that if things continue the way they are, the Fed is going to have to torpedo growth to a potentially recessionary degree? Well, the Fed right now is, you know, markets are pretty confident in the Fed's uh, program because they have the Fed taking the short-term rates up to about 3%. That causes the economy to slow, and then the Federal Reserve eases policy in 2024 and 2025, and we have a soft landing and live happily ever after. Uh, I don't think it's going to be that easy because because the markets are so confident in the Fed, the financial conditions are still quite buoyant. Uh, If financial conditions are buoyant, that means the Fed has to do more to slow down the economy. Also, a soft landing is very, very hard to achieve when the unemployment rate is so low. Uh, The soft landing examples that Powell has cited in 1965, 1984, 1994, were all examples where the Fed tightened and the economy slowed, but did not slow sufficiently to push up the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate in all three of those episodes kept declining. I think in the current environment with the unemployment rate at 3.6% and wages running well above a rate consistent with 2% inflation, the Fed's going to have to tighten enough, to tighten financial conditions enough to push up the unemployment rate. And when the Fed has done that in the past, it's always resulted in a recession. That's not their intention. They'll go for a soft landing, but their chances of pulling off are very, very low. 
Do you think that rapidly reducing the balance sheet bill will be enough to achieve this sell-off that you think is necessary in order to enact some of the tightening that the Fed is trying to achieve? Well, certainly we'll work in the right direction. Uh, obviously, quantitative easing helped hold down long-term yields. And I think if, as you reverse course, that should push them up. But we don't know by how much. Uh, we already know what the Fed's going to do, and markets haven't really moved very much. So uh, you know, I think it's just a, a big wild card in terms of how much will the tight quantitative tightening do the Fed's job for them. I think the big point I would just make is just it's very unlikely uh, that a year from now we're going to be at this level of bond yields, this low, and this level of stock prices, this high, because that's probably not sufficiently tight financial conditions to do the Fed's job for them. Bill, parse the difference as inflation comes down of the importance of goods inflation coming down versus service sector inflation coming down? Well, obviously, both matter. I mean, I think where, where the Fed's expectation is, is that goods inflation will come down quite a lot over the next yeah. year because uh, the composition of demand as the economy reopens will shift away from goods but back to services. And the fact that some of these supply chain disruptions, for example, in the auto sector, will gradually get resolved. And so car prices, for example, will be weaker, used car prices will be weaker. But the services sector inflation is going to be a lot more persistent because that's really about labor costs. And we're seeing that labor costs are going up because the labor market is un unusually tight in the current setting. Bill, why don't Fed officials, when they're in the seat, talk like you just have now? Well, it's unpleasant to be a Fed official and talk about how you have to tighten financial conditions to push up the unemployment rate. Uh, you don't want to talk about putting people out of work. And that's not obviously the deliberate goal of policy. The deliberate goal of policy is to keep uh, inflation from getting out of hand. Unfortunately, one of the reasons, ways you have to do that is to, vet, to, is to generate enough slack in the labor market uh, to keep inflation in check. And that's just an unpleasant conversation to have. So what the Fed, Fed officials talk about is how we have to keep inflation in check so we can sustain this economic expansion and keep the most number of people employed. And that's true, too. Uh, what they're not telling you, though, is that how difficult that is to pull off. Bill, a clinic, as always, and we appreciate your time this morning. Bill Dudley there, the former New York Fed president and, of course, amongst other things, now a Bloomberg opinion columnist. The title of his piece this morning, Tom, if stocks don't fall, the Fed needs to force them. get right to it. This is too important of a conversation and is truly extraordinary. Evelyn Farkas and her family are out of Hungary. They know the experience of moving out of continental Europe over to America with her tour of duty at Franklin and Marshall College and then her PhD at the acclaimed Tufts University Fletcher School. What is fascinating is in her public service to President Obama, she is now on the same page is John Bolton. That is extraordinary. And Evelyn, we had John Bolton on the other day, and both of you say, get over it. We're not going to start World War III. Discuss what America can do amid this fear that we have that, OMG, we're going to have World War III. Well, I mean, I think, Tom, to the point that what what i've been arguing and i and i had a uh, washington post op-ed about this and i've been running around um i guess like john bolton not with my mustache on fire but my hair on fire trying to explain that we shouldn't let vladimir putin deter us yes unfortunately he has used chemical weapons and he has a lower threshold for nuclear use but he does not want war with nato 
So we should really calculate the risk that we are willing to take in order to protect civilians. And I think me and several colleagues of mine who are national security and foreign policy experts, we signed a letter saying that the administration should not dismiss the idea of a humanitarian no-fly zone completely out of hand. And what we're trying to do there is say, do, do not rule things out. We need to be agile and we need to understand that we may need to do more take on more risk to save lives. And so I'm worried as we move into the next phase of the fighting that we aren't thinking enough about how to save lives. We are providing additional military support and that is really important and that should continue. I look, Evelyn, at the path forward and we are shocked by these atrocities. I don't want you to get in the debate of the war game, but I want to know from you how a Pentagon or the Pentagon in Germany, or the Pentagon in France, how they respond to the horror that we've seen? Well, I think everyone is horrified. And the question now is, what can be done? In the past, even, even in, in brutal wars like the Balkan Wars in Bosnia, I lived there after the war, we have had international agencies in there providing humanitarian assistance and trying to prevent the kind of massacre that happened in Bucha and elsewhere. And I would like to see some of these multilateral institutions like the Red Cross taking more risk, maybe going in with armed escort. They were held back more than 24 hours from rescuing citizens, innocent civilians from Mariupol just this past week. So more needs to be done. Certainly other countries need to be pressured to put pressure on Russia to allow for civilians to be evacuated. But unfortunately, what we see here is that Russia is purposely trying to slaughter civilians. It's part of their, their effort to try to break the will of the Ukrainian people and the government. Evelyn, how do you see this ending? Well, of course, I'm hopeful that the Ukrainians can, frankly, take back their territory and beat the Russians on the battlefield. I don't think sanctions are going to destroy Vladimir Putin's uh, intentions here. I mean, his his... His aggressive foreign policy will continue and sanctions will take a longer time to have an impact. So really, it will be determined on the battlefield. We, If we can provide sufficient or, or enough, I mean, sufficient, I don't like the word, but if we can provide the military means necessary for Ukraine to push back the Russian military, there's a chance that they can regain their territory. Other than that, there is a compromise potentially where the Ukrainians might have to give up some territory, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Evelyn, a personal question. Your father has been definitive on the collapse of the Hungarian aristocracy and the time from another place, even before Stalin and Hitler. I am fascinated how you believe we can explain to the Russian people that Ukraine doesn't need denazification. You lived, your family lived Nazification. How do we explain to them that we don't need to denazify Kiev? Well, this is a problem. I mean, the Russian government has a lot of control over its population through its monopoly on the media. They do have a lot of internet saturation in Russia now, and so some people can get alternative news and truth, but that's also being increasingly squeezed out. And yes, my family, I was born in the United States, but my parents both fled communist Hungary. And as a child, I went 
back to Hungary to visit my grandparents. I spent summers in Hungary. I know what it's like to live under communism when you can't speak the truth and being told as a 10-year-old to be quiet because I might get my grandparents in trouble. And by trouble, I understood it meant jail and something pretty serious. So, um, you know, the Russian people, we don't really know exactly what they think, even when there are polls that are taken. Those are probably somewhat suspect. But unfortunately, the brainwashing is pretty effective. It's going to take frankly speaking, the Russian soldiers coming home or not coming home for the Russian people to start to figure out what actually they their government is doing in their name. So as I said, the home front in, in Moscow, in Russia proper, is not really where the war is going to be determined. I think it's really going to be on the battlefield. Evelyn, thank you, as always, <laughs> for joining us. Evelyn Farkas there, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence. Dr. Cassidy. Bill Cassidy is from Louisiana. He is a force in Baton Rouge, winning 59% of the vote in 2020. Senator Cassidy, thank you so much for joining this morning. Before we dive into the clear and present gouging, I need to talk to you about the distance from Detroit and the Democrat Debbie Dingell and John Dingell out to Kalamazoo on Route 94 and Fred Upton. Fred Upton retired yesterday, almost in tears, from the Senate because he's being pushed out by the Trump part of the GOP. You lived this. You had a nice reelection in 2020. Can you comment on the GOP vendetta against those that said we need to impeach the president? Well, first, Fred was redistricted in a tough way. He lost 350,000 of his base voters. Now, there are some in the party who are mad at folks like Upton, mad at folks like me, who voted for impeachment. Uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, you do what's right and you, you know, live with it. Uh, and I think Fred is incredibly proud of, of the integrity that he showed with that vote. With the enthusiasm that we hear and suggest that the Republicans may take the House, indeed the Republicans may take the Senate, what does the new majority Republican Congress need to do day one? Yeah, day one, we need to have to, we need to start going after inflation. Inflation, inflation uh, right now is being driven by energy uh, cost, both direct, the cost of the pump on your fuel bill, but the indirect, the, the inputs to the fertilizer that go to the crops, that's a lot higher now as well. I proposed an Operation Warp Speed, just like we took the vaccine and within 10 months had something predicted to take two to 10 years, we should take um, uh, a regulatory kind of, uh, let's get all together and figure out how we can increase supply and decrease prices for us and our allies uh, within 10 months, uh, if not shorter. We can do that, but we need the regulatory agencies. We need an Operation Warp Speed. Senator, where do you see this fitting into eventually moving away from less of a reliance on fossil fuels? Yeah, so right now, believe it or not, there is a regulatory uncertainty for renewables. There's a regulatory uncertainty for carbon capture, utilization, sequestration. So what I'm speaking of is not just oil and gas. It is also the CCUS that Louisiana has been waiting for Region 6 EPA in Dallas to get off their duff on our application since October of last year. Are you saying, uh, so, so, excuse me, Senator, are you saying basically that it could just be a regulatory fix that could plug the hole, that could plug the gap in some of the supplies that we're seeing, uh, at least in part stemming from Russia? It could be a regulatory fix as well as regulatory certainty. 
Um, uh, right now, it's death by a thousand cuts to fossil fuel. So why are you going to invest when OPEC may decide to collapse prices and you're left with regulations, which, et cetera, et cetera. So my point being that if you could have regulatory certainty, uh, have a little bit of capital injection to kind of commit the federal government, yes, you oil field service providers, we're not going to leave you out hanging bankrupt. <clears throat> then we could rapidly improve, right. increase production. Bill Cassidy, you own the high ground on this, and today it's going to be big oil that's going to talk about price gouging and that, but you live it in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, with CF Industries, the largest nitrogen fertilizer company, I believe in America, maybe in the world, I'm not sure on that. Explain to us how the people in Donaldsonville aren't price gouging fertilizer. Yeah, so natural gas is a feedstock for fertilizer. Um, and so if your inputs rise, then it's going to increase the cost of the final product. Now there's also the ability to ship. There's also other aspects of the logistical supply chain. Uh, obviously it costs more to maintain your plant, costs more for labor because of general inflation, but that's just going to be a little bit of a gap. Yeah. Uh, now, you could sell it below price in which some middle person is going to buy it and then sell it at the market rate, but in somewhere there's going to be a markup. Senator, amid this soup of information, the soup of concern around gas prices, how concerned are you or how upset will you be if you see oil companies post bang bu gangbusters uh, profits in the next earnings season? Well, you want to look at the reason for their profit. Um, uh, let me just say that. And if they're going to use that profit to turn around and invest in the new um, uh, fields that we need in order to increase production, uh, well, isn't that a good thing? And let me point out, about, I don't know, a year ago, people had to sell their oil at a zero, below zero price. There was no storage. They had to pay people to take their oil. <clears throat> So there's always going to be some rises and falls. What you want to see, though, is the capital investment that long-term uh, creates more certainty in terms of our fuel supply. Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Senator, thank you <clears throat> for being with us today. With Michael Collins, he's at PGM. And what's cool for our global audience is the State University System of New York. And in my youth, everyone knew the most prestigious math program was if you could survive it at Binghamton, New York. Michael Collins survived mathematics at Binghamton, which is a big deal when we were growing up. He's senior portfolio manager again. Uh, PJ, Mike, buried in your mathematical note is the economic bet of PGM that the wage spiral or the wage worry, including what Bill Dudley saw in the last hour, may ebb away. Do you see evidence of that yet? Uh, you know, you're just starting to see, Tom, uh, the wage growth uh, and the labor market growth start to flatten out here uh, and maybe start to roll over. You see it in hours worked uh, in, the, in the report we got on Friday. So, so I think you have probably passed the peak rate of growth uh, in wages, right. certainly the peak rate of, of inflation, I would argue, as well. You're going on calculus on us like Lyle Brainer did yesterday when she talked about uh, the rapid pace, let's call it the second derivatives of these markets. How do you actually prosecute bond management given the rate of the rate of change right now? 
Yeah, well, we all know, Tom, that the markets really do focus on second derivatives, right? And it's it's the change that really matters more than the stock, right? When it comes to quantitative tightening, for example, you know, a lot of people will look at, well, the balance sheet is nine trillion, so it goes to eight and a half. What's the big deal? Uh, it is a big deal, right? When the Fed embarks on quantitative easing, you see a super high direct correlation with asset prices going up. Uh, so what we're contemplating in our shop, Tom, is when they do quantitative tightening, do you get a symmetrical um, pullback in asset prices, or is it more measured as the Fed tries to um, signal that quantitative tightening is is uh, watching paint dry and it's on autopilot and it's it's uh, not going to be a big impact on the markets. But I do worry that it will result in much tighter financial conditions. So let's uh, since you walked right into the big debate of the day, does quantitative tightening cause higher longer term bond yields or lower ones? Yeah, yeah, it's the opposite of what everybody thinks, right? By the time they start the quantitative easing, right? Typically rates have plummeted, you're, you're in a recession, uh, it's a big risk off. And what happens when they start buying bonds? Rates go up because what they're trying to do is get inflation higher. And it's going to be the exact opposite when they do quantitative tightening. The markets have already priced in. Look where rates are, right? Look where inflation expectations are. They're kind of peaking here. Uh, so by the time they start tightening policy through through rate hikes and simultaneous quantitative tightening, which we've never seen in, in our lives, right? This, this kind of quick reversal of monetary policy on so many fronts, I think you're going to see a peak in rates at, at that time. So a peak in rates at that time. Are you buying 10-year treasuries at this point saying 2.6% looks golden over the long term? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we had we had cut duration earlier this year and we were we were short uh, duration uh, marginally in the U.S. And just really in the last uh, week or so, we've we've covered in. Uh, most of that, and we're kind of flat uh, duration. I mean, there there can be a better entry point. I mean, personally, I, I I'd love to be you know long duration at some point over the next you know few months or, or few quarters. But for this at this point, we're just kind of waiting for for the right entry point, uh, and it will come right. And and it typically comes right around the time the Fed starts tightening policy aggressively, and they really haven't started that right. And and they're right. going to start in earnest really soon. Michael, the movable feast, which is the terminal yield or the terminal dot plot, has an x-axis and also a level. What's the level of the 10-year yield and how far out is that terminal yield right now? Yeah, it's really fascinating, Tom, to, to look at what's happening with forward rates, what the market is pricing in. The markets are basically pricing in a funds rate right now in like a year or year and a half of, of close to three and a quarter now, right? So 300 basis points almost of in incremental hikes. But a year and two years and three years after that, the markets are pricing in almost 100 basis points of rate cuts. I, I don't recall ever in our lifetime right. where the yeah. Fed has... Fed hasn't even started or has just right. started hiking and the markets are pricing yeah. in 100 basis points of cuts in, in the out years. And, and I actually yeah. think that's a pretty My likely God, scenario. Brilliant. And I call it the parlor game. It's just to me, it's just absolutely idiotic. But what you just said, what I find fascinating, and this goes to what Bill Dudley was talking about an hour ago, is the idea of in a year and a half. What does your world, seriously, what does the PGM insurance, asset management, conservative money world do if you get that magnitude of change over 18 months? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's base probably our base case, Tom, that you're going to have uh, growth slowing. I believe we're already at the beginning stages of what could be a pretty significant level of demand destruction from higher inflation. And now you're seeing higher rates and tighter financial conditions. I mean, mortgage refinancings are plummeting. Mortgage rates are pressing against 5% this morning. I mean, housing has become basically unaffordable for, for most of the people uh, in this country. That is tighter financial conditions. Growth is going to slow. It's just a matter of how much and how fast, but certainly in a year, a year and a half from now, we could be in a very different world where the Fed is pausing on rate hikes and maybe even contemplating cuts. So what you do as an investor, you try to take the long-term view, knowing that in three and five years time, the funds rate is gonna be back to zero, Wait. right? The 10 year will probably be back to one at some point over the next five years. So you wanna take advantage of that, capitalize on that, on that capital gain you can get by being long duration. Tom, I just want to be clear. Did you just call the parlor game of trying to game out Fed policy into the future idiotic? Is that right, No, Tom? I agree with Michael Collins. We're at an absolutely original place. I, I, I just, I, 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 I was talking to, uh, uh, I, I think it was uh, Aquinas this morning about um, uh, Richard Timberlake of, uh, of Georgia. Timberlake never wrote about this. Well, Meltzer never wrote yes. about this. Anna Schwartz never wrote about this. This is unheard of territory. And what we're moving toward, and Michael, this is what you were picking up on, the idea that at some point the Fed is going to trigger a downturn. You're going to see growth materially slow down. The question is, will it be something controlled or will it be a dramatic downturn, something that's a recession that's sooner than expected? Deutsche Bank came out and said that they expect a recession in the United States in 2023. Do you agree? Do you think that that's looking increasingly likely as we look at what the Fed has to do to get markets basically to believe them? Yeah, I think the probability of a pretty significant global slowdown, and you're already seeing it, you know, in big parts of the world in, in Europe and China, we got PMIs out of China below 50 today. And, and the U.S. just cannot, you know, be an island of, of prosperity unto itself. So you will see global growth slow. The question is, what does the recession the recession look like. And I actually am pretty constructive on this one, right? And if you look at consumer balance sheets, you look at corporate balance sheets and the liquidity they have and the profit margins and the, and the wherewithal to kind of withstand some weakness here, this is not going to be a big business or consumer-led contraction. I, I feel like it's going to be almost like 2000, 2001, where you get a big correction in asset prices, possibly, uh, and some, some pain in the markets. But but, you know, back then you hardly saw consumer spending, uh, you know, go down at all. And maybe it's that kind of mild recession or big global slowdown. Mike, you are just awesome. I've missed sitting around a table with you, sir. Mike Collins there of PJ. Mike, thank you. A well-timed meeting with Lindsay Piggs, the chief economist of Stiefel. We're thrilled that she could join us uh, this morning. Lindsay, I got to get to May 4th. And I guess there's the Ides of March, but tell me about the Ides of April. First, I got to get to April 15th. What data matters for Lau Brainerd, Jerome Powell, and Lindsay Piegza as we try to get to the Ides of April? I think first and foremost, the Fed is going to be focused on inflation. Inflation is the driver of the Fed's new, more hawkish position, and it's inflation that's driving this forward pathway for rate hikes. The Fed telling us now that the consensus is for six additional increases, potentially coming in 50 basis point increases. That new position, that more aggressive pathway, 
is driven by inflation. So as prices continue to rise, be that lingering pressures from the supply chain disruptions right. or new upward pressures from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, that is what is going to determine the pathway forward for the federal funds rate. In goods and services, what is the distinction in moving from 7 to a survey to 8.3%? Is that a goods oomph or a service oomph? Oh, I think it's both. I think we're seeing price pressures in both. I, I think the Fed is washing the fact that prices are no longer transitory. They're now broad, uh, excuse me, broad based across nearly every sector of the economy. And that is sparking fears that we're moving closer and closer to a wage price spiral, where prices rise, pushing wages higher, pushing prices higher, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so the Fed is very much focused on capping inflation, starting to imply that second derivative decline meaning a still positive pace of price pressures, but a slower pace, and then eventually moving on to an outright decline in price growth towards that 2% 2 target for the Fed. Lindsay, do you think that people are overestimating or underestimating the strength of the consumer right now? Oh, I think people are overestimating the strength of the consumer. We hear about the consumer being strong. We hear about the economy being strong and the potential for the Fed to undermine this strength in the economy. The economy is not overheating. The economy is not strong. The economy is just moderate at best and arguably poised to already slow as we're still struggling to grow organic legs in the aftermath of the worst of the COVID pandemic. Consumers are still very much relying on an accumulated savings as a result of very generous federal programs, as a result of a shift in spending patterns from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, as we saw an additional... <clears throat> and check in many people's mailboxes for that enhanced child, uh, tax credit. Yeah. There were a number of different factors that really built up that wealth cushion, and that continues to support consumers for now, but it will not support consumers indefinitely. Well, and that was really where I was going to go, the time frame here. How long is it going to take before that weakness that you're talking about starts to present itself in earnings in other economic data? Oh, I think we're already seeing the weakness. Even if you look at fourth quarter GDP, which was up near 7%, when you strip out inventories and we look at real final sales, you're talking about 1.5%. And Q1 GDP shaping up to be a significant disappointment, well below 2%. So we're already seeing that weakness. Now, when I think the bigger question is, when do we see that translate into negative GDP? And I do think we'll continue to float around positive territory for the next six to nine months, but getting that first outright negative print by the first quarter of next year. You're looking for a negative print on real GDP by the first quarter of 2023. That's correct. I, I do think at that point, the wow. Fed will have raised rates enough to choke off domestic wow. growth. Now, will we see a technical recession? That's a question for whether or not the Fed can identify the weakness and then pull back after a series okay. of rate increases. If they continue to move forward, I do think we go into technical recession. If they have the wherewithal to pull back, we may well, be able to navigate uh, not necessarily a soft landing, but a right. very brief dip into negative territory. And there you are two days in a row, folks. As Lindsay Piegza pulls forward with Deutsche Bank and Matt Lozzetti were talking about yesterday from late 2023. If the Fed bollocks it up, maybe we see a Q1 of 2023. Dr. Piegza, thank you so much for joining us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.